Well, morning, everybody. Morning. And morning to old faces that are new to me. Uh, which is... Now, that meant people that were here previously that I don't know yet, right? <laughs> Better clarify that. <laughs> I wasn't referring to age, okay? <laughs> so, yeah, morning. So, just by way of reminder, we are in a series called Sent, where we are diving into the book of Acts. And, and I want to keep holding before us the purpose of the series, So we are a church that's in redevelopment. We're a church that is trying to re-envision what it is that God wants to do here. We're trying to recover what the Bible teaches us about what the church is supposed to be so that we can allow that to shape what it is that we do as we move forward. So whenever you're looking at the church and going, what's the church supposed to be? The best place to go is always back to the book of Acts. Why? Because you see the church before all the trappings of institution and culture and all of the different pieces and church history right back to the beginning when they didn't know what they were doing and it was just a group of people with the Holy Spirit doing what he was compelling them to do. So there's a beautiful simplicity in the book of Acts about what the church looks like and what their mission is as they go out into the world. So we want to look at Acts and and try and recover this idea of the church as sent people in the world. What does that mean for us individually? What does it mean for our church? What does it mean as we partner with the churches around about Portland uh, to, to work together to see God's will accomplished here? So, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there's two things to keep in mind as you're reading through Acts during the week, because of course you're doing that. Uh, and then as we talk about it on a Sunday, as you're looking, there are, there are kind of two categories of content that you'll see as Acts describes the church. One that you can call descriptive, so it's describing what the early church looked like. And then there's another type that we would call prescriptive. And things that they're doing are kind of prescribing a pattern that we're supposed to walk in for the rest of, of, of the, the life of the church. And so you'll want to be discerning and seeking and we'll, we'll wrestle together with which of these elements are descriptive and which are prescriptive. Um, this morning, we're going to jump into the, the, the second thir- two-thirds. <laughs> we did the first two-thirds, now we're going to do the second two-thirds because in preacher terms, two-thirds and two-thirds makes a whole. Um, So we're going to do uh, the second two-thirds of the book of Acts, um, and we're going to look, um, starting in verse 14, but we're going to look through here, essentially, at three transformations that are happening. So just get us back up to speed. Um, Jesus has died. He's raised from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples. He's been teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then one day, when they're there, he just disappears up, it says, in a cloud, and, and we'll, we'll translate that and interpret that how we want. But, but then from there, he tells them, go to Jerusalem, wait. They wait in Jerusalem in obedience to his command. The Holy Spirit falls. So in Acts chapter 2, right at the beginning, the Holy Spirit falls on the people. And there's this incredible moment where all the people are speaking. And they're speaking as the Spirit gives them utterance. And then it tells us that all of the people around about hear the words translated into their own language. And they're all like, what the heck? These people are drunk. Um, and that's where we pick up the story. So that's always a good part. So we're going to look at three transformations that come from here. From the minute the Spirit is poured out, this miracle happens. What are the three transformations that go um, from here? So we're going to look at Acts uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Um, and we'll do some reading, and I won't read the whole thing this week. 
and then go back through it all. I'll read it and talk as we go. So Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So the first thing that I want to address, the first transformation that you see here is really Peter's transformation because Peter is transformed from the denier to the declarer. And I think it's easy at this point in the story to miss this massive transformation. You go back into the end of Luke's gospel. You've just watched Peter as he's sitting around this fire and people coming up to them saying, hey, you were with Jesus. And he's like, no, that wasn't me. <laughs> and we look at the story and go, if it was me, I wouldn't deny him, right? Yeah. Right? If it was me, I wouldn't do that. Never mind all these people are about to kill him and we know it. And if I'm associated with them, then they're probably going to kill me too. And I got to preserve my life because that's what we do, right? Um, so, so he's had this moment where he's denied Jesus. Scripture says he denies him three times. Jesus even predicted it to him. You'll deny me three times. And Peter's like, no, I won't. <laughs> and he goes on and does exactly what Jesus predicts. Is Jesus trying to say something horrible, like I'm pointing out the brokenness of your character and we're going to fixate on your sin? He's saying, no, I'm letting you know this so that when it happens, you know that I chose you knowing it would happen. And then that there was going to be a transformation would come that would, that would allow you to experience the grace and carry you forward into all the other things that I prophesied. So at this moment, you've got this moment, the Spirit has fallen. The disciples have been in a room scared. They've been praying. They've lost their Savior. They've watched Him die. They don't know what's happening. All of a sudden, the Spirit falls. People start speaking. Everyone's going, what's going on? These people are drunk. And Peter the denier that was scared to acknowledge his commitment to Jesus stands up in the middle of a public crowd filled with boldness and authority and from nowhere starts expounding scripture and declaring this amazing sermon. I just think that's fantastic. When you look at your life, do you see yourself as a bold declarer of scripture or do you see yourself sitting a little more in this sort of denier category? When people at work are talking about stuff that I don't agree with, I'll just keep my mouth shut because I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to upset people. I don't want to get in trouble. Um, maybe you're one of those people when you're, you're sitting with friends and you're like, man, I wish I could find a way to share the gospel. This would be a great opportunity. But you're just scared. Like There's so much hope at this moment in the story because the Holy Spirit fell. And all of a sudden, that fear and that doubt and that worry disappeared because the Spirit emboldened him and didn't just embolden him, but imparted into him the words that he needed to, to declare to make sense of what was going on. So when you're fearful, when you're doubting, when you're worried about sharing, God will give you, if you ask him, the boldness uh, to declare what he wants you to declare. So let, let me start with this question. Are you willing to let God use you to declare the gospel? Now we all go, yes. <laughs> but let me ask it again. Are you really willing to let the Lord use you to declare the gospel? Are you willing in those moments where it's uncomfortable to respond to the stirring of his spirit and speak up? Would you be willing walking down the street if the spirit moved in you to stop in the middle of Fred Meyer and say, hey, everybody. 
everybody in all of Hillsboro. Let me explain to you what's happening. Would you be willing? Because at the end of the day, a lot of the time we're like, yeah, I want to be someone that declares God's truth, but one-on-one in a comfortable situation when I'm ready and well-schooled and ready for it, right? (laughs) Um, So are you willing? Are you willing to offer yourself to him and say, God, I want the boldness to declare your truth. I need you to give me the words to speak them. I need you to create the opportunities for me to speak it. And then are you willing to die to self in the moment and go from denier to declarer as the Spirit empowers you? Such an amazing transformation. Anyway, let's move on. There's lots of scripture to cover. So um, on into, this is into verse 17. So we're going to look from here at this amazing sermon that Peter preaches. So Peter is about to explain the events that just happened, the Pentecost event where the Spirit was poured out. So let's look, well, I'll just read Peter's words and then I'll go back and we'll kind of follow his logic. So, So this is what Peter says. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This hint, hint, remember, Luke is is emphasizing everybody, the universality of the gospel. Everyone, not just Jews, who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He goes on, verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. You saw it. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And then you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But... God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Amazing truth there. I, sometimes, see when we read scriptures like this and Jesus raises, it's all right to like whoop and holler and applaud, right? I'm going to go back a little bit. And, and I just want you to like be excited about this truth right here. So this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. Yeah, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, and he quotes from Psalm 16, this is verses 8 through 11, I saw the Lord always before me. So this is King David as he's writing and he's speaking and he's prophesying. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And then he goes on, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. 
and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. So Jews reading this passage would have interpreted this as, as David talking about himself. And Peter's looking back on it going, David died. He's saying God's going to protect the Holy One. His body's not going to decay. We know David's dead. We know his tomb's there. His body's decayed. So if David died, as we know he did, then it has to be speaking about someone else. And I'm about to tell you who that someone is that he was speaking about. He goes on. Um, Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God had raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it. And I'm sure he's pointing to all of the disciples around about us. We are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, And yet he said, this is Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So here you've got Peter Scared to acknowledge around a campfire to a tiny little girl that he knew Jesus. He was scared of a girl, right? (laughs) Come on. I'm playing. It's all right. (laughs) Girls are scary. (laughs) And every middle school boy knows it, right? (laughs) Every middle school boy knows that. Um, This guy who was terrified, all of a sudden standing up and declaring with boldness this theological exposition of the Old Testament that explains the reality that Jesus is the Messiah. So we could spend hours and hours and days and days walking through the beach, but I'm going to do it kind of quickly, and I want to walk through the logic so that you can understand what Peter is preaching and what the people round about would understand. Um, So let's follow his logic. So he's beginning by quoting Joel. And he's saying, as we said last week, God promised to pour out his spirit. And he's looking back at the prophet Joel. And if you grab your Bible and you were to look at Joel, it's three chapters long. It's a fun little read. It's all about plagues of locusts. Super exciting. (laughs) But he's, he's talking about this judgment on Israel. And he's explaining to the people that if you were to turn back to the Lord, if you were to rend your heart, then this would relent. And as a result of returning to the Lord and God blessing his people, he would restore their land, he would restore their crop. And as he goes on, he starts talking about this messianic day that is coming, where where Israel is going to have peace and prosperity. And then he says, on this day, I'm going to pour out my spirit. And all of a sudden, everything changes. Because he's promising this day when the Messiah is revealed will be the day when the Spirit is poured out and something changes. That all of a sudden, this system that they lived in where your ability to be an instrument of God in the hands of other people, your ability to receive revelation from God and communicate it to other people was relegated based on your gender, your race, well, other order, I guess, your race, your lineage, and your gender. 
So you had to be Jewish, you had to be from the priestly clan, and you had to be a male between certain ages. Um, and so he's saying, we've walked in this system where the people that God would use, the people that God would speak through, and the people that God would teach through are relegated by this system. All of a sudden, I'm going to pour out my spirit. And it's not just going to be Jews. It's going to be Gentiles. It's not just going to be men. It's going to be women. It's not just going to be the old priests. It's going to be the young kids. All of them are going to hear my word, and they're going to declare it boldly. And we're walking into a new era where it's the anointing of the Spirit in your life that determines your ability to minister, not your gender, your race, and, and the family lineage that you come from. So he's blowing everything open here and saying every single person in this room, from the youngest kid in here to the oldest person in here, the Spirit can enable you to declare his truth to people, to carry his gospel forward, to receive his, his, his revelation and communicate it to people in a way that will lead them closer to him. It's a phenomenal moment. This was what was promised. God would do it in the messianic age. And so he's setting this all up with this exposition of Joel. Then he goes on and he explains to them the Messiah's death was foretold. Now Jesus talked about it. Isaiah predicted it. The Jews didn't understand it. They were looking for this Messiah who was going to be a political revolutionary that was going to come in, overthrow the Roman government, bring Israel back to the center of the world stage. And it didn't go that way. But he explains in here that the Messiah's death was foretold, that Jesus didn't die by accident, but he came according to God's plan. It all happened according to God's foreknowledge. The Messiah would die. He goes on to explain that the Messiah's resurrection was foretold, and he quotes from Psalm 16 as David talks to this Lord figure, as he talks to God about this Lord figure, this holy one that wouldn't see decay. So he's, something's going to happen, and his body's going to be preserved. And in that passage, Peter understood that the resurrection had been proclaimed years and years before. Then as the, the, the speech goes on, he starts quoting from Psalm 110 to explain that the exaltation of Jesus or the exaltation of the Messiah had been predicted. And he quotes from Psalm 110, which is this very short messianic psalm that's quoted like 25-ish times in the Bible. It's the most common Old Testament psalm that the, 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 the passages refer to, to talk about Jesus being the Messiah. And he's talking about um, David as he says, like the, the, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make an enemy, the enemies a foot still under your feet. And this moment of exaltation that the passage talks about as God's chosen one would be exalted to the right hand of the Father and everything placed under his feet. So, so in this passage, God's promise is going to pour out the Spirit. The Messiah was predicted to die. It was predicted that the Messiah was going to be raised from the dead. It was predicted that the Messiah would be exalted to the right hand of the Father. And then he explains this moment, exalted to the right hand of the Father, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So he reaches the climax moment of his message. If the Spirit has just been poured out as you've witnessed it, then God has poured out his Spirit. If Jesus has raised to the right hand of the Father and has poured out the Spirit, 
What does that mean Jesus is? If Jesus has poured out the Spirit, then Jesus is the Messiah. You could even put an equals, because if Jesus is the Messiah, and Joel says God is the one that's going to pour out his Spirit, then the Messiah is God, because he's the one pouring out his Spirit. So in this climactic moment, he's walking them through. God said he would pour out his Spirit. The Messiah was going to die. The Messiah was going to be raised. The Messiah was going to be exalted. Now the Spirit's poured out. I'm telling you, Jesus has just done this. He's the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And, and how do we know that's what Peter intends in this sermon? Because the second transformation happens right now. The hearers were transformed. They hear this sermon, they hear this climax moment, and the scriptures tell us of a transformation that happens in them. Let's look at Acts chapter 2 verse 38. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what do we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And with that statement, Luke's letting us know that this sermon that we've just listened to is a summary of what Peter preached. It's not the entirety of the sermon. He didn't preach those couple of minutes and all of a sudden the whole people felt convicted and then they just went on their way and lived happily ever after. So he preached a longer sermon. That's the summary points of it. And then it says he spent many other words. He pleaded with them to save yourself from this current generation. And so you get this amazing moment where this message is preached, where, where he acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. You don't need to put this up on the screen, but in verse 36, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And all of a sudden, the people are cut because the evidence from Scripture was so clear. The logic of the argument, the prophecies as they were predicted, made sense of passages that the Jewish scholars had been confused about. And all of a sudden they realized God had sent the one that he'd promised, and they were complicit in killing him. And of course, if you're a Jewish person, and you've just found out that you've killed your Messiah, they're going, ah, what do we do? Because he's coming to save us. He's coming to rescue us. He's going to restore all of Israel. We're going to be back in right relationship with God. What do we do? Turn back time. <laughs> Raise him from the dead. Oh, there's an idea. And this moment of just deep conviction, this moment where their heart is cut and they call out, like, in, in those moments of conviction, we feel them, you know, those moments where you're convicted. You listen to a sermon, you read a book, someone uh, challenges you on something, and you feel that conviction. What's going on right here, the mark of someone who's receptive to the Spirit, when you feel that cutting, your automatic response is, God, what do I do? What do you want from me now? Um, I think in the West, we're very good at, wow, that was really convicting. Okay, time for dinner. Uh, <laughs> You know, 
I'm going to write this down, and next week when I have some time, I'm going to think about it some more. But their response, what do we do? Repent. Repent. Change your mind. Change your thinking. Change your way of living. And so the second question that comes with this transformation, is your heart being cut or becoming calloused? They were at a point where their heart was so callous to the truth of God that they were willing to kill the Messiah. The truth was declared. The Spirit moved through Peter and through them as they received it, and their heart was cut. So where do you sit on that spectrum as you hear the word declared? Is your heart being hardened towards it, or are you being cut open and crying out to God, Lord, help me, empower me to go live this out? Um, and, and this is so subtle. As I say, I, 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 I've said this many, many times. I feel like in the Western church, we're convicted, we're, we're, we're addicted to the feeling of conviction. Man, that was a great sermon. Oh, really challenging. The end. You know? We feel the stirring. We know there's something to do. Then we lack the submission, the, the submitting to Jesus to have him lead us forward into the next thing. Is your heart being cut or is it becoming calloused? Be asking God, fill me with your spirit to soften my heart, to respond to your truth, and to go out into the world to do the things that you're asking me to do. As the passage goes on, we see the third transformation. So the first transformation, Peter was transformed. The second transformation, the hearers were transformed. And this third transformation, community was transformed. Because as they respond to this message, it says that, there were, um, that, that people start giving their life to Jesus and the shape of what community looked like, the color of what community looked like, the demographic of the community, it's all transformed. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Uh, uh, dyslexia right there. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And, and, and see as they respond uh, to the cutting of their heart, what it looked like as it got lived out in, in the community that, that, that we're part of. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together, and with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of the people, of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the, the spirit falls, the word is preached, they experience conviction. They have this moment, what do we do? They're told, repent and be baptized. They walk forward in obedience to that instruction and it completely transforms the fabric of the society that they're living in. And this is one of the best descriptions when we ask the question, what should the church look like? How should we be functioning as the church? This description is really what we should be looking like as a church. What do they devote themselves to? He starts with these four descriptors, teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. So they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. What are the apostles' teaching? They're walking back through the Old Testament 
and showing how everything that was promised was fulfilled in Jesus. They're walking forward and teaching people the words that Jesus taught them, the teaching about the kingdom, what it was, how it would function, and what their role was to be in that kingdom. And so, if we want to be the people of God, I mean, we get this. This is 101. Be the people of God. We got to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We got to start at the beginning and understand the Old Testament, understand the story of God, understand the, the heritage we share with the Jewish nation. Then we've got to understand the predictions in there about Jesus. We read the Gospels and we see the fulfillment of so much that was promised. We walk through Acts into the letters and we understand what that's supposed to look like as it's lived out in the context of the church. So, so we devote ourselves to teaching. The second one, they devote themselves to fellowship. And the word fellowship here, I mean, we, we, with all of these words, we reduce them. Fellowship is just like getting together and having a little Christian powwow, right? Let's, let's just have a little natter and chatter and gather together and we call that fellowship. The root of the word fellowship is literally like to share. So this word is about like sharing. It's about sharing your lives. It's about sharing your possessions. It's about sharing your heart. It's about sharing your wealth. And we know that because the rest of the passage goes on to describe what that looks like as they sell their possessions and give to those who have need, as they, they hold everything in common. So if we want to be a church that looks like the, the early church when the Spirit poured out, you've got to ask, are we marked by sharing? Not just like, here, borrow my book, or here, here's my truck for a couple of days, but are we actually giving ourselves and our resources to one another? And um, The third one, the breaking of bread. Um, which, which has the tradition around this has become that we practice communion. And here we've been in the habit of, of doing communion at the, the first Sunday of every month. We gather to break bread together. But breaking bread was more than that. It was gathering in people's homes to eat meals together. It was about depth of relationship. Part of the meal would involve remembering Christ's sacrifice as they engaged in, in the wine and the bread. And so... As a church, how are you, as a member of the church, how are you doing at having the other people from the church in your home to break bread? Okay, it's COVID, so little, little funny right now. So you, like, well, let's go back to like January <laughs> last year uh, before it all kicked off. Like, how are you doing at that? Are you a person of hospitality? Have you been working your way around the people that are here, inviting them over to hear their story, to know their life, to share your home with them? Because that's a mark of what it is to be the church. Um, and the last one was prayer. And, and, and the word is plural. So it says prayers. They devoted themselves to prayers. And the Jewish uh, nation and, and, and within the religious system, they had set prayers that we would engage in every day. So what this probably means was that they went to the normal Jewish prayer times to worship Yahweh and to take advantage of those times to help the people round about them know that the Messiah had been revealed. Um, but this was a, a daily commitment, multiple rhythms through the day of being devoted to prayer. So these four elements have to mark the church, but... Devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. Devote yourself to fellowship. Devote yourself to the breaking of bread. Devote yourself to prayer. But we're just at the start of Acts. This is just the church finding its feet to carry out the mission. That is not the mission of the church. So if that's what our church looks like, we're failing at the mission that God's given us. Because he's about to go, when we get to chapter 8, things are going to blow up and the rest of the book is the mission. 
And we gather for these things to fuel us, to send us out there. And I think what happens is we like the fellowship and the breaking of bread and we just keep eating. <laughs> and eventually we're going to explode, right? <laughs> um, we're supposed to be spreading the message of Jesus intentionally, not because it's exploding out of us because we've eaten too much of it, <laughs> if that's even possible. Um, one thing that, that I, uh, we want to do moving forward um, we have different prayer times that happen. We would love you to join our church in prayer. So there is a Tuesday afternoon, 4 p.m. prayer time that happens through in the nursery. There's a group of people that gather and pray for the prayer requests. There is a Thursday night Zoom call that happens where people gather. There's about 30 minutes of chit-chat. You can join for the chit-chat or you can jump straight in at 8, p 8 p.m. and join us for 30 minutes of prayer. It's an opportunity to devote yourselves to prayer together. Um, but what I really want to see us do is have more opportunities where we are gathered together as a whole church calling out to God. Um, and so starting from next week, we're going to gather here at 9 a.m. prior to the service and we're going to spend 30 to 40 minutes interceding for our church for God to move in our services and for the community roundabout. Um, and so I've, I've talked with this to a couple of different people. Um, and, and if I haven't shared some stuff with you, I'm sorry, because I'm about to make something mandatory that you didn't know. Um, <laughs> part of the reason you hired me is because of the commitment to prayer and the desire as a church to grow in prayer. I am convinced with every ounce of my body, that God will not move here the way that we want him to until we corporately unite ourselves in prayer for our church and for the city. And so for me, this is like mandatory, <laughs> as much as that's possible. If you serve on a Sunday morning, this gets a little tricky. If you serve on a Sunday morning, you need to be here from 9 to 9.40 to pray with us. Because there's no point in standing up here leading worship, doing sound, doing AV, making tea and coffee, and, and doing it all in our own ability, right? And that stuff on its own is not going to grow a church and change a community. When we gather together and we plead with the Lord, He promises that He'll respond. So if you're serving on a Sunday, come join us. The staff are going to be here. The, the current lead team are going to be here. The worship team are going to be here. And then the open invite goes to everybody. So like that's, it's mandatory for the people that are serving. And it's like as highly suggested as it possibly can be to everyone else that's in the church. If you're part of this church and committed to this church, from, from, from you, like Sky's, well, Sky won't work. Ewan could participate. Ella could participate. Come, and we will pray together. Um, and so we're going to do that every week, 9 till 9.30, 9.40. We're going to gather here, and we're going to pray. And I am 100% convinced that if we prioritize this as a church, God is going to blow the roof off of this place. Um, it's going to start in us because the Spirit is going to fill us in a way that we've maybe not been experiencing uh, we're going to ask him to move in a different way in the way that he's been moving here because we're giving him more time to plead to move in the sermons. The, the, the sermons will be more fiery. The worship will be more anointed. The fellowship will be deeper. Uh, and that's going to transform what we do as a church and what goes out there. So, so 9 a.m. start next week. If you can make it, please be here. And, and, and just to give the caveat, you know, if you've got kids or someone that you have to pick up, like I understand 
Like, I understand there's people that just can't be there, and so I don't want you to feel guilty, like I'm going to think you're this evil person because you're doing something else. Um, but I just, I, I just want to say, let's prioritize this moving forward and, and see what God does. Um, oh. <laughs> so teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. That's the first little part, Acts 2.42. And it goes on, and, and the rest of what the chapter explains is just kind of fleshing that out. And so he takes these four simple statements and begins to show what that looks like as the church works out in the community around about them. As he starts describing their generosity. Um, as they, they sell their property and their possessions, they give to everyone in need. Um, they have everything in common. This, this is one of these things. This is descriptive. This is not prescriptive. This is a good example. He's not saying everyone sell everything you have, and we're just going to put it in a church bank account, and then we're going to figure out from there how to take care of everyone. Um, we know because as the church grows, like Paul's writing to people who have church meetings in their houses, so they still have their houses. <laughs> um, but, and so this is descriptive of the generosity. They're willing to take their possessions, sell them, and share it with people that are in need. Um, it's great in a church to have a benevolence fund where we have money set aside in the budget to be able to help people in need. The church is functioning more like the church when the people in the church provide things for the other people in the church the way God intends. It was never meant to be an institution that did it on our behalf. We're supposed to be walking in this generosity together. Um, they met in public and then at home. I, th this is always a beautiful part of the way the church functions in its health. These public gatherings where it says they would get together in the temple courts. Uh, every day they would get together in the temple courts in this public place, listening to teaching, not in a building where the world isn't, but out in public where the world can overhear it. I think that's always interesting. And then they would go to homes. They would break bread in homes. They would gather with glad and sincere hearts and in their homes praise God together. And so that mix of we gather together as the corporate church to praise God, and then we gather in smaller groups and homes and in coffee shops in order to see God do what God does. And then the statement in the middle of this, this is all about him transforming community. It says, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So the, the, this group of Jewish people have received the Spirit. They've pledged their faith in Jesus. They have become the church. The Spirit has fallen on them. They are compelled by a new power source to live out in the world. This new form of community happens where, they, where it's, it's not the teaching that's different. It's not the prayers that's different. It, it, to some degree, it's not even the sharing that's different. It's that all of a sudden, it's gone from just Jewish families with Jewish families with the people who are considered clean, to all of a sudden men and women, old and young, Jew and Gentile, God-fearers or not, the broken, the downtrodden, all of them coming together um, in a way that they were excluded in the past. And something about this new community, as the world roundabout saw the relationships that were lived out, they saw the transformation in people's lives. They saw the way the community interacted with one another and interacted with the lowest and the least. And it says that people were added daily to their number. And this is before they've gone out with the gospel. 
This is the church gathered doing what the church should do, being a family that gather around the person of Jesus, submitted to his spirit, giving radical love to one another. That should cause people to be added to our number daily because they see the love, they see the generosity, they see the kindness, they feel connection, they feel belonging, they feel wanted, they feel the lies replaced with truth, they feel the broken identity replaced with hope. And people were added daily. And then in the West, what have we reduced it to? You turn up to church on a Sunday morning. You kind of say hi to the people that you know and then you leave. Occasionally, you go to a group during the week, and you say hi to your people, and then you go back to life as normal. And then when the world out there hears us describe the church, it's just a bunch of busy work. I go on a Sunday, I go on a Tuesday to prayer, I go to my group on Tuesday night, I go set up the tables on this day and whatever, and people are like, I don't have the time for that. That's not what we're supposed to be communicating the church is. It's a radical place of belonging and transformation. And so the question becomes, when you look at this community, when you look at uh, what we're doing as a church, when you look at your family and how you live, uh, where you look at yourself and the way you function, does our community inspire people toward Jesus? Is there something radical about the way that you're living and inviting that makes people curious? Is there something radical about the way that we gather that would make someone that doesn't know Jesus out there that hates the church curious enough to come and taste and see that God is good? Um, and so there's a shaking up that we have to do. There's a reprioritizing that we have to do. And then again, remember, we're just in Acts chapter 2. This is just the start. This is the church coming together, figuring out what it feels like to be compelled by the love of the Spirit before they're sent out to start planting churches and reaching the people around about. Um, and, and, and this is where the church so often gets stuck. And people will preach, what's the church to look like? This is it. Devote yourselves to the teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. And let's just ignore all the rest of the commandments of Jesus that are the important ones about and go make disciples. Be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So as we look back on this passage, as we look at the early church, as we look at this ragtag group of people with no qualifications, no seminary training, no evangelistic training, they've grown up knowing the scriptures because their families taught them, the culture around them helped with that process. This ragtag group of people, the spirit falls on them and the way they do community is transformed. The way they encounter God is transformed. And it's so visible and so tangibly different to what is seen that people start joining and giving their lives to Jesus. So if we want to be a church that reaches our community, if we want to be a church that the Spirit is working through to transform the people out there, we've got to make some commitments that will devote ourselves to the truth of Scripture, that will devote ourselves to, to fellowship, to koinonia, to sharing what we have with one another, um, that will break bread together, and that will prioritize as a church. I mean, it's a small enough church. You can work through the directory and just say, every week I'm going to invite a different family over for dinner. What do you think would happen to the relationships in this church if every grouping in here prioritized spending time with every other group in here? Clickiness disappears. Territory disappears. 
the, the divisions and the upsets disappear because we're in fellowship, and then devote ourselves to prayer as we gather corporately to have one heart and one mind crying out to the Lord, God will stir all of this in a way that's going to make people out there take note and in a way that's going to prepare us as God moves us out to do the work that he wants to do in the community around about us. Um, everyone's looking at me as if I'm being a little heavy. I think I am being a little bit heavy. Um, <laughs> the people heard the truth and they were cut to the heart. And so I'm hoping to a degree you feel that. I feel it as I read it. Like, am I cut to the heart? And, I, and I, if I am, then, then what do I do? We repent of the way that we're living. We fix our eyes on Jesus and we ask him, what do we do? Show me what you want me to do this week to take a step towards being the kind of church that you intended our church to be. So let me pray. God, passages like this are uh, inspiring and encouraging and hope-filled, and then they're convicting and difficult and exposing. Uh, and, and man, what a good description of the way your spirit works. God, thank you that you sent Jesus. Um, the people in this room could not have known you because we're Gentiles. We were excluded from your people. So thank you, Jesus, for coming and doing the hard thing that was predicted and needed. Thank you for dying and suffering on our behalf. God, how amazing that death could not hold you. It wasn't like Jesus died and all of a sudden you were like, quick, raise him from the dead. We've got to fix this. Death could not hold you because you were pure and holy and righteous and the creator. And so you burst forth out of the grave. Thank you, God, that you exalted Jesus to your right hand. And thank you, Father and Son, that you have given us the Spirit who takes us in all our feebleness and all our fear and hesitation and empowers us to be bold and declare in the gospel. You give us the ability to hear your voice, to dream dreams, to see visions, to interpret your word and to communicate the truth to the people around about us. God, thank you for this picture, this description of the church. Help us to be a church individually and together that's devoted to your truth. That experiences the fellowship of shared life together. Lord, that we would break bread and remember what you did daily and that we'd be committed to prayer. And God, as we move forward in that posture, would you blow open these walls? Would you blow off this roof? And would you transform the lives of the people around about you? Not just so we can have big numbers, not so that we can stand at the end of the year and say, look at us but so that they can encounter you and experience the fullness of life that you intended for them. God, you are so good. Would you move in us? Would you change us and transform us? In Jesus' name, amen.